Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia. Today, we welcome Eric Balchunas. He is Bloomberg's senior ETF analyst. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, Eric, you have a ton of experience in ETFs. Let's start by introducing the two books you have written about this sector. First, your book about ETFs as an institutional tool. And second, about the story of Vanguard, John Bogle, and what impact Vanguard has had over the ETF industry. That book is called The Bogle Effect. So talk to us about your books. Yeah, so um, let me start with the first book because I was an ETF analyst since 2006-ish, and I had started my career covering mutual funds. And so when I got ETFs and I was uh, tasked with building up the database for ETFs for Bloomberg. Um, having covered mutual funds, I was like, wow, these things are like five or six evolutionary steps beyond the mutual fund. They blow them away. So I quickly, I was like, I'm going to dedicate my whole career to this thing. Um, I, I'm sure it's what some Bitcoin people feel like with discovering that. But I, I thought this is going to be a big deal. And, and it turned out it was. Um, these are really just very consumer-friendly vehicles to get exposure. Um, I, quit, I quit ETFs to the MP3. They really make compact discs seem expensive and cumbersome. And everybody just switched to digital, get the same stuff in a more flexible format for about a tenth of the cost in terms of your annual expenditures on music. It's beautiful. ETFs doing the same thing. So I wrote a book uh, called The Institutional ETF Toolbox because I just wanted to write a primer because I have internally people were like, oh, I heard of ETFs. I don't know much more. And I was like, all right. So I... I said, I need to write a book just so people can like read it and get up to speed on everything that's going on with ETFs and how investors use them and the history of them. And so I just wrote that book for that reason. Um, then over the years, that was in 2014, and then the latest book, The Bogle Effect, one of the big influences on ETFs was Vanguard. And because the first ETF had an expense ratio of 20 basis points, 0.20%. And the reason is because it wanted to tie the Vanguard index fund that was 20 basis points in 1993. So really, the whole ETF industry was positively influenced by low cost that Vanguard was driving. And if you look at a lot of trends in the funds world in general, and you pull the thread on them, you end up in 1974 in Jack Bogle's brain and his decision to set up Vanguard as a consumer-owned company. So the fact that the investors own the company is weird. So... They make all the decisions, so every time they get extra money, they vote to lower the fees. So this unique structure um, is the first, the main thing for Vanguard. And then you throw in the index fund, which they pioneered, and you have a one-two punch that was very powerful. So a lot of the trends we see today are because of Vogel's work, Vanguard's unique structure, including ETFs. So the ETF book is a really great primer on ETFs. But I would then zoom out and be like, ETFs are just one chunk of this gigantic Vogel effect that's really part of the whole changing of the financial industry that's been taking place over the last 45 years. Um, this one person, I think, will have a bigger effect than any other human for, the, for good on investors. Um, and I wanted to really lay all that out in the book, the Vogel effect. So those are sort of the, the two books. If you read both those, you'd pretty much know everything I know. Today's video is sponsored by River. 
we are extremely proud to be sponsored by River. It is a Bitcoin only exchange, somewhere you can go to get allocated. And we love River for a few reasons. But most importantly, River does not use a custodian that is an external party. It uses its own method of multi-signature cold storage so that you and your funds are not exposed to the world of counterparty risk. Now, River even encourages you to get your coins off of the exchange as soon as possible. And they also have Lightning Network capability so you can get those coins off like that. Make sure you check out river.com slash TBL. Now let's get right into your prediction. Bloomberg and your team have it at 90% probability that we will have a spot Bitcoin ETF approval by January of next year. So talk to us about that prediction. What has gone into that analysis? Yeah, we've been at 90% for um, months now. Um, as I like to say, before it was cool. And before it was safe, I see all these big institutions like JP Morgan and Standard Charter. They're now coming out with, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're more and more confident. We should see approval. I'm like, it's easy to say now. It was hard when we did it. But the reason we did it was that we really work a lot of uh, sources. We work uh, a lot of the um, history and the technicalities. We consult with lawyers and legal experts. And what, what really got us bullish this time was, uh, first of all, the Grayscale lawsuit. Uh, them losing 3 nothing in court was huge. Uh, our legal analysts said they have very little wiggle room anymore. So that's when we immediately went to 90%. Now, we originally said 2023, but you know January 10th is like six business days into the year. So let's just say we've been bullish uh, in terms of them happening this cycle, meaning all of these filers are in a current cycle. In the past, they'd be 10 filers, and then radio silence from the SEC, and then bam, they would deny them. This happened like three or four times over 10 years. In the latest cycle, the big difference, and the reason we're incredibly um, optimistic, is the SEC is starting to had, had engaged with the issuers. They sent them notes on the prospectuses saying, hey, can you actually increase your disclosures on X, Y, and Z? How do you plan to do the NAVs? I want more information on this. I mean, come on. You're only going to do that if you have plans to get these prospectuses into shape for approval. And so not only did we hear them doing that for the S1, which is the corporate finance group, we heard them doing that with 19B4s, which is from the trading and markets group. And we were told that this issue had been a 10th floor issue for a while now, which means that some issues at the SEC just stay in their department uh, and they're more routine. But every now and then an issue is a 10th floor issue, meaning it's up to Gensler. So Gensler clearly who could, you know, looks after the whole commission. Trading and markets and corporate finance are both like people, you know, in the SEC. So the fact that they're both kind of reporting up to the 10th floor and the fact that they both gave notes and comments on these filings and are trying to push them into a place, fine tune them, if you will, so that they're happy with approval. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get any more. It's almost like they've informally you could say they're not approved yet, but the planning to approve is real. Um, so when they finally get approved, to me, it's just more of a formality. Uh, but let's face it, everything I've seen and heard is pushing us towards approval. Then last week we saw BlackRock met, BlackRock met with them. Um, we saw that other firms met with the Trading and Markets Group. Um, this idea that we get the 
they delayed the Franklin uh, filing. I won't go into details on that, but let's just say that delaying that was necessary because they, they had plenty of time before they had to delay it. But that, make, that, in a way, frees them up to make all of them be able to launch at the same time, which is something we had always heard of and thought they would do. So in order to have like a sort of derby where they're all lined up and they launch the same, they had to delay Franklin. So that was yet, even though it was a delay, and that sounds bad, it was actually very positive towards this um, vision that we have laid out that you're going to see a bunch of launches on the same day um, for this for these Bitcoin filings. There is one, one or two caveats to all this. One is there is some sort of uh, lack of clarity on whether in-kind creations will be allowed. BlackRock and ARK currently are pushing for these. These are better for the investor. But apparently the staff has said we want cash creations. Some issuers are okay have done has have put cash in their filings. So I have heard that you have to do cash or you gotta wait till like another round later. Now BlackRock and ARK are two of the people in kind and they're they obviously have been doing this a while, they have a lot of pull. Will they be able to get their in kind through? I don't know. This is still something being worked out. Um, that said, there are some people who are doing cash credits who are ready to go. So, you know, whether ARC and BlackRock get included, we will we'll find out soon. Um, the other caveat is just, you know, whether, you know, when you're dealing with this much, this new asset class, I don't know, we're keeping a 10% chance that they're like, geez, guys, we're, we're just not quite ready by January 10th. Let's push it back a little. So the 10% chance isn't that there'll be like a wave of denials. It's more just that January 10th won't be met, but it'll be pushed back a little bit. So as we told people, if January 10th isn't the day that they get approved formally, the, the, long, the more we go into late January and February, the higher our odds get. So it's not like we're like January or bust. It's January is simply likely the first day and it gets grows from there. So I think if you're I sometimes get worried that people are gaming this and like using us for like short-term trading and I don't want any part of that because I don't want to get involved with dates. So today I tweeted out, look, just everybody relax. Like the important thing is, is that approval is in process. They, they are working with the issuers to get these things ready for prime time. That, that, you know, if you take a broad look like people like Michael Saylor have, which I think is smart, which is look, they're coming out with the dates, January or February, you know, that isn't as relevant as the fact that these traditional finance companies are launching these. The SEC is ready to approve them. And ultimately, over the next couple months, you know, we're going to see these come out. I mean, it's just, it's pretty much done. Um, and that idea of these companies looking at these products as a, an asset class is a big deal. So I try to just, you know, I'm a, I, I, all kinds of crypto people are coming at me all day when we tweet about this that just try to see the big picture. You know, I wouldn't get too mired down in every detail. We like to give updates on the details because it's what we do and we're nerding out over this stuff and it's fascinating. This is a one of one situation and it's been going on for 10 years. That's why we're so stuck on this. Um, and so that's just sort of where we're at. But we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. In fact, this week we could see some updated 1984s come in. Uh, we're supposed to. I heard the SEC wants to see them in by the end of November. Well, that leaves us like two days. So we should see uh, big issuers update their 19B4s or, and even S1s for the second time. In there, we should see some stuff on the cash in kind, potentially some other nuggets. 
Um, and I'm looking forward to that. That should also give us some information. So as we release this stuff, analyze it, you know, a lot of this is us nerding out, but remember, just I would just keep your, your eyes on the big picture, which is this is all a fine-tuning of legal documents to get them into place to put them on the starting line. Yes, we do believe that focusing on the big picture is very important here, and ETFs are important because it does open a floodgate of capital. We use this term because we know that there are trillions of dollars locked in these accounts, and by locked, we mean money that is only able to access certain vehicles. Once we get this new vehicle, we have trillions of dollars that will be able to access Bitcoin for the first time. So it is a very big deal and something that we have been focused on for quite a while. Now, Eric, talk to us about Binance. Binance was just taken down by the U.S. regulatory agencies and we see CZ stepping down as well. So what is the relationship between Binance and the spot ETF approvals? Are We know many people have related the two in that we could not get SEC approval of these Bitcoin ETFs without having Binance taken down and other members of the industry that were engaged in fraudulent activity, removing them from the picture. So talk to us about Binance and are there any other players that we should be thinking about that the SEC has to take down first before they can get into approval? Uh, in our view, no. Um, and uh, again, we were 90% before the, the Binance um, stuff. But I think that only helps because there was some question early on, well, how can Coinbase be a, of significant size, which is some legal jargon about surveillance sharing agreements. But over the past couple of months, we, we think that I'm not even sure how much the surveillance sharing agreement matters uh, at this point. Um, I'm not sure they're stuck on that. I think they've kind of moved on for that. That said, this is only additive. The fact that uh, you've got less, quote, fraud and manipulation or anything, any bad actors involved, the more comfortable uh, the SEC is getting with this. Some people tweeted, and I give them credit, they said, Binance has to go or to be dealt with before the SEC would ever approve an ETF. At the time, we didn't really comment on that or say anything. It was somewhat logical, but we didn't really have an opinion on it. But I would say for those people, um, I think this probably, you called it. Uh, I think this probably was part of an action plan when they met after the Grayscale ruling or even before, and they laid out what they're going to do. Um, and I think it's good. You know, this is, Matt Hogan had said it many times. This is part of the, this is the this is the mainstream era for this stuff. This is when traditional finance gets involved, and this is all part of, I guess, cleaning up the industry a little bit. So it is ready for uh, grandmas in Iowa, you know. Then that's what is at stake with an ETF. When you put something in ETF, you're saying that an 80 year old, um, you know, grandma can can buy this, uh, in, you know, in the, in the Midwest. I, I just use her as sort of the average retail investor and not the sophisticated investor. No offense to grandmas in Iowa. They're probably smarter than me in many cases. But um, I used to use Aunt Edna as my sort of classic retail investor. Like especially I would do new um, trainings on ETS for our new hires and I would go over and leverage ETS. And I was like, these probably aren't for Aunt Edna. Anyway, Aunt Edna is can access ETS. Now, I will say that Nate Tracy brings up a lot. ETF store guy who's been on this too. 
and Ednick could have always just bought Bitcoin many other ways, GBTC, exchanges. So it is kind of weird it took this long. But I think in the SEC's eyes, the ETF is probably the most prime time thing you can have because it literally, once you put an ETF, it gets distributed on every brokerage exchange. And when people buy ETFs, especially advisors, they buy it because of the understanding that the SEC has sniffed through this and it's got that pretty regulatory wrapper on it and it makes them sleep at night. So that's part of why the ETF is such a big deal and some of the crypto people don't understand that or maybe choose, I don't know, they, they, they don't really see why do you even need the ETF or why do advisors care so much, but they like that, that idea that, that the SEC has signed off on this and it's in a regulatory wrapper and a prospectus and there's all kinds of legal documentation. They like that. Um, so I think that's sort of, uh, I would just, I'll, I'll just leave it there, but I think that's, you know, why they care so much. Well, let's talk about Grayscale here. Grayscale and its vehicle GBTC. We've seen the discount to net asset value absolutely collapse here. We're at almost par, meaning that we've come back quite a way and there's not really much of a discount in this Grayscale vehicle. So are we heading for... Uh, an instant conversion here. What is the interpretation of this discount going away now? Unknown. Um, this is a fascinating subplot. Um, you know, Genzer has, every time he's asked, he says, well, we have eight to 10 applicants. And I always feel like he's trying to draw a line between Grayscale and the others, but Grayscale updated some documents. They met with the SEC. Um, it's just, it's hard to say, because there's a couple issues here. One is, Remember, Grayscale sued them and embarrassed them. You know, will they figure out a way to get some petty revenge on them? Maybe. Uh, but they would also maybe look bad and open up to other lawsuits. Uh, you know, they got to weigh all this, I guess. Uh, number two, you know, has a trust like this really ever converted? It's not like a normal thing. It's not like it's it can't happen, but it's not every day that you see something like this go right into an ETF form. Um, the other thing is, if the SEC wants a level playing field, it is a little unlevel to let Grayscale come out the same day with $20 billion in assets. That puts them at a big advantage because assets and volume are really important in the early days. And Once one of them gets like the most volume, it's really hard for someone to overtake that. Volume is – liquidity around an ETF can only grow organically, but once it grows around your ETF, you're, you're kind of set. It's very tough. Way easier to steal assets than liquidity in the ETF world. So uh, they would almost have an unfair advantage in, in a way. So, But on the flip side, if they charge 2% in an ETF wrapper, nobody's going to buy that. Um, even ARC is already at 80. And I think we'll see some at 40 or 50 basis points. So the price point would have to come down too. So there's just a lot of unknowns. But the discount at 9, 8, 9% to me seems right. I would still leave some room, right? But it definitely came down from like 40 or 50. Um, so with the ARB over, I don't know if some people are saying that's kind of it. But, you know, in a merger and acquisition world, like when a stock is when the announcement, there's always like a little premium there because there's a possibility the deal doesn't go through. Some hedge funds actually try to buy that and take the risk. I feel like that's what's happening here. There's a little premium baked in just in case they don't go the same day. We don't have any information on that. And when we go about and saying 90%, they are not necessarily in our odds. We're just saying a group of ETFs will be launched. 
remember there's 12, I believe, that are including them. There could be some that aren't ready. Let's say the SEC is a stickler about cash, and some people are like, I just have to do in kind. They won't go. Let's say somebody just didn't get a certain document in on time. They won't go. It's possible we may not have all these horses make it to the starting gate, and GBTC might, be, might not be one of them. So it, there's, a, there's a world out there where GBTC doesn't launch on that day or convert on that day. Maybe they convert, I don't know, a month later. That still means they convert, though. Uh, then there could be seven ETFs launching on day one. Maybe a, on the Ether issue, there was two that dropped out right before post time. I think there was only, at the end of the day, two or three Ether futures ETFs that launched, even though there were seven or eight that were filed. So it's going to get crazy. And then, there, then right before they launch, this is also something to watch, there'll be people holding the final prospectus against their chest as, as late as possible to, to disclose their fee. And because if one of them's like 50, I don't know if you ever watched The Price is Right, when that person bids $1 over, that one could come out at 48 and just like, and they could be like this quick jockeying to see who will be quote the cheapest. So I think we're we're just going to see so much interesting jockeying as we get up to that starting line. GBTC is trying its best to get there. Information will come out soon that will tell us whether they're going to be part of this or not. Um, but to me, eight nine percent seems like a I don't know. It feels like the right equilibrium right now. Again, I don't give investment advice, but I get I get it. I get why the marketing, the market is saying, okay, 8% is probably good for now. Eric, can you please quickly summarize for the audience, what is this surveillance sharing agreement that you're talking about? What is Coinbase's role? And just give us a quick overview. It's, it's really simple. It just means that like if the uh, NASDAQ um, wants some information on a trade that happened on Coinbase, Coinbase will share that with them. That's really all it is. It, 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 you know, that was important to the SEC because they felt these crypto exchanges were the Wild West. And, and if something crazy happened, they couldn't be tracked down. But Coinbase is willing to enter into those agreements, which means that if something – like they'll work with NASDAQ to find this shady player and, you know, I guess bring them to, the, to justice or whatever um, – and that, that's really all it is. Uh, it's a fancy term for just like having some communication with the more traditional exchanges on uh, who, who's doing what or where the trade comes from. I'll be honest, even, even the traditional tra exchanges see some weird stuff. And sometimes there's a trade that was put in that gets unwound because it was on not fair. Sometimes we'll see an ETF price spike up real high. The market maker clearly screwed somebody over and the exchange will make them undo that. And so... This is not that weird. Uh, it's pretty normal. But remember, crypto exchanges didn't exist, what, 10 years ago? They're a new thing. So the SEC just, that was one of their things they put in their original denial is uh, we can't possibly sleep at night unless there's these agreements. But this is why I think also Binance moving out of the picture, and which will only help Coinbase, helps. Um, and the idea that BlackRock and NASDAQ or Coinbase list on NASDAQ. NASDAQ has a relationship with them, so does BlackRock now, who already works with them. It almost felt like from the beginning that Coinbase was being sort of, you know, with their arms, you know, BlackRock and um, NASDAQ putting their arms around Coinbase and sort of working them into this traditional finance world, and they were the one. And it seems like that's exactly what's happening. So it doesn't sound like Coinbase has any issues with, with sharing that information. And the more that these big institutions are comfortable with Coinbase, I think the more the SEC will be, even though they are suing them. That is one issue that, that some people brought up is like, how could they approve it with 
you know, current suits being uh, laid out. And um, it's a fair question, but, you know, we'll see how this plays out. The other question is uh, custodians. Right now, Coinbase, I believe, is the custodian for all but two of them. Will some try to switch? Will the SEC want the custodian to be a different company than the exchange? Maybe. But the good news is there are other custodians. Fidelity is using itself. Uh, and Fidelity is probably happy to take other people if they want it. So these are not deal breakers, but they are still last minute kind of open questions. But so far in any of the updates, I haven't seen anything on the custodian or the surveillance sharing agreement to lead me to believe that this was some sticking issue with the SEC right now. It does appear as if BlackRock, Fidelity, and Coinbase have the inside track here on ETF approval. We will look forward to having Eric back on the show. Once these ETFs go live, we'll take a look at the volume and break down some of the statistics together. Eric, we look forward to having you back. Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst at Bloomberg. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Please tell people where they can find you online. Yeah, BI ETF Go if you have a terminal. If you don't, you can find me for free uh, at Eric Balchunas on X, Twitter. Um, also, uh, I have a podcast called Trillions, which is free, and a TV show called ETF IQ. You can just Google that or watch it on Bloomberg TV. All that stuff's free, uh, free ways to get me. So that's how you can find me. And uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Great, Eric. Thanks a lot. And we hope you guys will catch us next time at the Bitcoin Lair. Make sure you check out river.com slash TBL for all of your Bitcoin exchange needs. We love River and the way they operate. They use their own multi-signature cold storage solution so that your funds are not held on a third-party custodian's balance sheet. Thanks again for checking out the Bitcoin Lair. I'm Nick Batia. We'll catch you next time.